Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking financial sustainability, the problems at the CBI, and a new commitment for disabled students. It's all coming up. Universities can be no better than society. I mean, a lot of the interactions that take place in universities reflect society. And I, But I do think exactly that. I think the student voice and the employee voice, I think, again, to give credit to trade unions in this space, what they've done is, they, you know, this wouldn't happen probably in universities in the same systematic way because of the fact that cases simply would be, you know, taken up by employee representatives. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to twin all the abacus of higher education, we've got three brilliant guests as always. In Glasgow, it's Anton Muscatelli, Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Glasgow. Anton, you're hired to the week, please. Well, Mark, thank you. I had a, a very nice weekend. Uh, we have uh, a very special year this year at the University of Glasgow. It's a tercentenary of the birth of Adam Smith, so I have to give a lecture in a couple of months' time about uh, uh, what Adam Smith had to say about education. So I was beginning to do reading and, and working on that, so that was very pleasant. And in Pevensey Bay, it's Mary Stewart, former Vice-Chancellor and Director of Leadership Development at Minerva. Mary, you're hired to the week, please. Oh, hi, everyone. Yeah, um, my highlight of the week has to be that um, I had another session with my Emerging Leaders uh, course. Um, yeah, that's with, with people who are in uh, head of department, head of professional service type roles. And we talked about different styles of leadership and it was really a fascinating discussion. Absolutely great. And in North London, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your heart of the week, please. Well, at Wonky this week, we had the opportunity to reconnect with an old friend, uh, Dewi Knight, who used to be spad to Christy Williams in the Welsh Government when she was Education Minister. Um, and he has now gone over to the Open University and is a director of a new thing that is going to be bringing, bringing together kind of comparative policy insight for policymakers um, across the whole UK and Ireland. Um, so it's a really exciting project and really lovely to reconnect with Dewey and we're massively looking forward to working with him on that. So we start the week with financial sustainability. Loads of new data out. Mary, walk us through it, please. Yeah, okay. So this is the HESA data that's just been released. Of course, it's backward looking. Um, so these are accounts that were um, up to the end of July 2022. So that means they don't take account of the um, the, the new round of, of this year's um, intake. However, I suspect when we get that information, what we'll find is that it's a similar pattern e- emerging. And, and what we are seeing in the data to um, July 2022 is more and more institutions in deficit. Um, and, um, you know, uh, although we have to, to look at deficits in, in, uh, with uh, a slight uh, pinch of salt because what absolutely matters in running an institution is cash um, because deficits are a mix of different things. And HESA does take account of some of that, in particular um, the, the issue about pension provision. 
which is exactly that. It's a provision, um, and it's based on a, a an actuarial um, uh, uh, formulation where you have to set aside money. So it's not real cash. But actually, if you look at the data, cash is incre- increasingly tricky too. So, you know, just just ten institutions are. Um, have less than 60 days net liquidity. And when I was a vice chancellor, we never, ever went um, below 90 days. That was really, really important because, you know, actually you need to to have cash to be able to pay your bills. And if you've got less than 60 days, that means you can't pay um, your your wages uh, two months hence. And, and that's a, a, a real a real challenge. Um, 21 institutions didn't even uh, submit in time. Now, that there are lots of reasons why that might be the case, but it's quite interesting that some of those institutions are actually quite large. They're not the ones you would think are kind of on the edge. Um, and really what this indicates overall is a, a, a sector under strain. Inflation eating away at income, um, people trying to replace the the capped fees in in England and and Wales um, with international. This is something that Scotland's um, had to deal with uh, for forever, uh, and I'm sure Anton could could say a lot more about about the situation um, in in Scotland. But even in England and Wales, the situation is now unsustainable. It's also unsustainable for students. We know they're going through a massive cost of living crisis with massive rent increases. And when you just look at one aspect of uh, student support, the the, the bursaries and, and other support the students get, the amount they get varies very considerably by institution. And that, of course, is, is partly bound up with how many WP students an institution has, because their overall figure is obviously divided by how many there are. So that creates that variability. But really, um, all this says that we need need a solution. We need a solution, guys. We need to be looking at how we're going to fund uh, a good higher education sector where students get the best experience they possibly can. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Anton, I'm trying to trying to read through the lines here and, and trying to constantly trying to work out, you know, where we're going to cross that line from this is unsustainable to you know, tipping over, tipping over the precipice. How 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 far away are we as a as a system? And I, and I mean, I know that the situation is kind of more acute in Scotland in some ways. Yes, and let me perhaps address the Scottish issue first, because of course we've faced um, a sort of a fixed resource uh, in cash terms really for the last few years where where there's been no cash increases or in some cases very small cash increases relative to um, the the student population and, and a cap system. And so you're seeing both in Scotland and in England and Wales and elsewhere uh, essentially an erosion of that, whether it's a publicly funded unit of resource in Scotland or whether it's a, a, a fixed fee in England. So I think you know, for the first time really since the 1980s, uh, we have a system in which uh, the public funding that's going in, whether directly or through a fee system, uh, doesn't matter. It's pretty much the same thing uh, at the end of the day, is being eroded by inflation and seriously eroded. Uh, now, very good question, Mark. How how, how long will it be before uh, you see some institutions in serious distress? Probably not long. We're already seeing one or two institutions in the news for having very large deficits, although, as Mary says, ultimately it's the cash position that counts. Um, the system as a whole, I suspect, will, will, will see more stratification over the next while, partly because 
of two things. One, the system is always quite adaptable. Uh, universities are quite good at reducing their costs and keeping their costs in line uh, with with reducing unit resource. So you'll find that those institutions that are better founded in terms of uh, their overall resourcing will be able to manage this. Uh, but others, and, and others, as Mary says, have been turning to international students to cross-subsidize uh, essentially the falling unit of resource domestically. And just to give you an idea, I mean, essentially, research in the UK is underfunded to the tune of about 28% of full economic costs. And in Scotland, if I know the Scottish figures, in terms of publicly funded teaching, you know, home undergraduate students, it's fu- it's underfunded by about 15%. So, you know, all that is being cross-subsidized essentially through international fees. And, and, and that can happen for a while, but it will not go on forever. So I think in the next five years, we'll see a real crisis in, in, in a number of institutions. You may get a you know earlier than that in a year or two you'll see well we've already seen some institutions saying that they've got deficits that are utterly unsustainable, announcing redundancies and staff cuts and and you'll see this I think continuously unless we can find some sort of solution to the inflation problem. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Debbie, is is there a problem with the way that financial sustainability is regulated, particularly particularly in England? There's been a lot of noise about that this week. Yeah, so um, the Office for Students um, published a note this week uh, about how it regulates financial sustainability within higher education. Um, and it, it, it disclosed a, sort of a, num- a, num- a number of pieces of information about kind of, you know, the, the, you know, first of all, the, 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 the body, the body of expertise that it has and, and kind of, and, 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 you know, the people who are involved in the decisions, the sorts of interventions that it can do with, with a provider. So, um, you know, you, you can, uh, you can sort of subject it to financial monitoring. You can kind of go in and do kind of more detailed assessment. Um, you can do, uh, you know, you can actually, you know, in, in one case, I think the, the OFS was involved in, in a, a provider that, that exited the market. Um, um, and that was in 2021. And and, and so, I mean, it, broadly, I think OFS is sort of trying to demonstrate that um, the that as a regulator, it, it, it has got this. Um, certainly, Jim Dickinson on the site has been quite scathing about the degree of secrecy. Um, I suspect, I mean, secrecy is such a loaded term, isn't it? It's probably not, it's not necessarily the right term. Jim's point is, is that, you know, if, if institutions are in financial trouble, it is, it is sort of, that is a necessary thing for the public and students to know about, because then that, of course, is going to inform student choice. Um, I think that, um, <laughs> I think I probably just disagree with him on that, actually. I think, you know, I, I think, I think, I think the, uh, I don't think there's a line between not in financial trouble and financial trouble beyond which, uh, you know, these things need to be made visible and, and, uh, and actually was one of the kind of purposes of a regulator because of course, this, as soon as you kind of announce that institutions in financial trouble, it is, you know, you, it's, it, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Where I think Jim might have a point though is, um, he, he, he dives very specifically into, into one provider, the provider that, that, Exited the market, which is a small private provider, um, which which obviously are often a bit more vulnerable to, to the sort of market pressures that all institutions are experiencing, um, and points out that the student protection plan in that provider at no point um, indicated that uh, that you know or the, the kind of the, na- the nature of the student protection plan was that was that it kind of assessed the risk as low and 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 made some sort of I think quite kind of broad sweeping kind of uh, statements about you know how how those students would be supported and ultimately actually OFS in, you know enabled those students to be supported and. and they move to a different provider but it does really again raise that question about these student protection plans and and whether they um you know whether they are meaningful documents whether they can really give information to students you know give that kind of security to students that if their provider were to 
get into trouble in some way or another that um that that it that it has a, a mechanism in place and really from a provider perspective whether a provider can say hand on heart actually we know exactly what we would do in those circumstances and that seems to me to be the bit of regulation that needs another look because it doesn't make sense to have regulatory documents that essentially don't don't function and you know I, I, I interviewed Michael Barber on stage at Wonkfest in 2019 and kind of suggested that this was not a thing that could work as a regulatory instrument and um and and, and I think you know we're we're sort of now beginning to see some of the um some of the the realities of that in practice yeah I think student protection plans I mean you know just having having developed one and and actually having having a, a you know a worked through what what we would do. I mean, where it where it's useful is around making sure you've got guarantees when you're going to be closing a particular program and guarantees and support for students through that process. But if market exit is is a another whole thing altogether. And um uh I mean, you know, as you say, in this case, uh there there was help and the students could go to another institution. Um I think that's more what we need to absolutely nail down and 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 show how how that can be done and actually that probably is not just for the institution it 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 probably does need a more interventionist uh, set of support I think through um you know the the regulator I think is is actually beginning to understand it needs to be more engaged with institutions than it, it was to begin with. Um, and and actually, I think institutions really missed that connection. And funnily enough, during COVID, when one suddenly found that the OFS did provide you with someone um, uh, to talk to and everyone was given someone to talk to during COVID, it actually was, was quite quite helpful and it it helped share information um apart from what we were doing with you uk so so i think that that greater connection is probably equally important in in this context but i agree with you i don't think student protection plans how, i mean how can you how can you absolutely work through that as a as a a mechanism for regulating um nobody really knows what it's going to be like when it happens I think part of the problem here as well is, is you know, and it's, I mean, it's such a, it's such a, it's becoming such a pedestrian point. But when you, when you look at providers on an individual level, and of course these are autonomous organisations, but you know, we're, it's also we're, we're also a sector, and you know, nobody's suggesting that you know the, the, the more kind of wealthy institutions should be transferring their, their, their pennies over, over to the ones that are struggling. But there, but there does need to be a sense that the sector works as a sector, um, and that's one of you know, it, it, in part, for example, it's so that students could, could you know, reasonably transfer between institutions in the case of, of uh, a provider getting into trouble um, and I guess the broader picture here is is that kind of divergence be between um, institutions the the kind of the implications then for the student experience that students have at those institutions and you know the access to funding that they have and all the rest of it um, and I mean it, it really seems to me that that is is not is not very sustainable either mm. Mm, no, I agree. I mean, you know, there's an interesting point thinking back to um, when an institution in London uh, lost their 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 um, visa license, and um, actually the sector did rally round and made offers, and it was kind of negotiated through UK. So um, it, you know, people couldn't do couldn't do um, unethical things, and all their students got places, and 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 that actually worked incredibly well but there was no regulation around no. it at the time 
And there's another whole story about that that we can't talk about on the podcast because of uh, the lawyers. <laughs> no, no, but, uh, no, no. Yeah, it's it's uh, a really interesting one. Um, Anton, I'm I'm also interested in another tipping point um, that might come, which is is the is is the one in public opinion. So it's 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 kind of been assumed recently that nothing is going to change until the other side of a general election when you know the political realities are going to to shift in unpredictable ways and um you know governments of various different stripes will have you know more or less cover to do different things on you know on the basis of um you know a, 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 a you know possible change in administrations but we are seeing something um at the moment which is a drip drip of stories in popular press um with concerns about student debt in particular um particularly as i think a lot of education journalists have cottoned on to plan five and what it actually means for students starting this september when they graduate um with 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 inflation running as high as it is and the the absolutely eye-watering um amount of debt they'll come out with and and of course then the marginal tax rate that, that they'll be paying paying back um, you know, we've been writing about this on the site for ever since it was announced, and um, it feels like the world is catching up with it. And I just wonder if that kind of calculation about maybe nothing will change until the election is may not, may not be right. Maybe we'll, we'll reach that tipping point sooner. It's a really interesting question, Mark. I think you're you're absolutely right. I think uh, that dimension of, of of student debt is is beginning. I think um, public opinion is beginning to catch up with that, and and not least because we've seen it not only in the UK and although it's a very different system, there's been a big debate in the US about what needs to be done around student debt, and the and the fact that uh, you know it, it, there's a huge heterogeneity of outcomes depending on where you end up on the on the wage distribution. Um, it could well be that then again there will be a knee-jerk reaction in the run-up to an election even by the current government to say well look you know this is not going to play well uh, on on the doorsteps i could well be that uh, on the other hand it'll be up to you know the next government whether the current administration is re-elected or the opposition comes in to to try and address this i do think it's an issue that has to be addressed and it's one of those, you know, unforeseen consequences because whenever we were talking about uh, an income contingent loan system, everybody always tends to focus on median outcomes. But in reality, what we've seen, I think, over the last, uh, you know, over the last ten or so years, is exactly that heterogeneity of outcomes. It depends where you are on the on the wage distribution, and depends on what your expectations were when you went into into, into higher education. So I, I think you're right. I think there there will be a much more intense debate. Especially if those if if, if those uh, constraints, you know, begin to bite. I think one one last thing, perhaps. I mean, we've talked a lot about the teaching side of things, but as I mentioned, I mean, one of the biggest issues for the UK, also particularly the, given the emphasis that is putting on research and innovation to get us out of this economic mess, is that actually at the moment we have a situation in which uh, about you know over a quarter of our research activity is effectively being funded by international students. Now that's that's fine in a steady state where there is no, uh, you know, sort of unstable geopolitics out there that, or, you know, difficulties of that type. But I think the problem is that it's not, a, you know, if you're trying to establish that as a, as a path out of economic stagnation and, and, and also there's overtones of national security about being a global superpower in research, you, you can't allow that to persist. You need to think about how you're going to fund your research base. Yeah. And talking about public opinion, I think people would find it very odd 
to, 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 to if they realised, you know, how how research is funded and and you know how much cross subsidy there is and how government don't don't actually provide you know the cost of research. Um, it's a yeah very strange situation. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Mark DeFreitas, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the implications of ChatGPT for careers education. Discussions regarding ChatGPT are literally everywhere, and this makes the absence of discussion amongst careers professionals even more surprising. For sure, ChatGPT isn't perfect. There's a need to challenge and fine-tune the answers received, and there's all an underlying need for us to understand what lies behind it as a platform. But the beauty of an adaptive platform open to all students at any time cannot be underestimated. For too long, the traditional careers model has been tired, out of date and unable to scale up to meet student demands. I believe that ChatGPT could be part of an overall answer in respect of this. And surely it's time for us as careers professionals to investigate and discuss its use and its incorporation into careers education more generally. Now, there are problems at the CBI, Debbie. Talk us through them. Thanks, Mark. So um, just before we get started, I just want to let listeners know this segment deals with the topic and specific instances of sexual misconduct and violence. So just so that you are prepared for that. Um, so the Confederation of British Industry um, is is on its knees from what, from, from, from what we can tell. Um, in recent weeks, there's been a number of uh, two young women have come forward uh, reporting instances of, of rape, stalking um, and uh, sexual harassment. Um, those instances uh, are obviously incredibly unfortunate for the women concerned, but they have also kind of led to the uncovering of a broader culture um, of what appears to be kind of silencing, cover-up, lack of support uh, for, for, for women who've experienced uh, those things. And kind of bro- more broadly, I guess, the, the sort of accommodation of those kinds of behaviours. Uh, the Director General, Tony Danker, um, has been sacked. Uh, the President, uh, 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 Brian McBride, I think his name is, is um, he's, he's written written a uh, sort of significant mea culpa and the organisation has suspended basically all activity pending a, a, a meeting in June to kind of articulate the way forward. One of the consequences and sort of the sort of natural consequences of this is, is, is that both government and opposition have suspended ties with the CBI. Um, lo- lots of big companies have, have pulled out, including John Lewis and NatWest, lots of big names. Um, and appropriately, I think uh, a n- number of universities have publicly announced that, that they're leaving as well. Um, so on, uh, on over on Mont Corner, um, Michael Salmon has kind of looked at which ones have. Um, So the question really, I suppose, is uh, whether the CBI has a future and particularly, kind of whether uh, whether any universities that are still in it, uh, you know, whether whether they should be very strongly considering whether whether the time whether it's time to pull out before they uh, before they look like they've missed the boat. Uh, Anton and and Mary, I'm really keen to get your perspectives on this. Uh, I, I mean. What what does this, I don't want to be rude, but what has the CBI ever done for higher education in this in this country? Like why why would why would universities still want to be members of this organisation? Well, perhaps if I can kick off, I mean, and I think uh, as far as I'm aware, all of the universities that uh, I'm aware of, uh, including my own, have suspended uh, any engagement. And in any case, there is no engagement, as, as Debbie said, because the, the CBI itself has actually stopped functioning effectively whilst it tries desperately to to sc- scramble for survival um 
why does the higher why did the higher education sector engage with the CBI? I think for two for two reasons. Uh, one, because there are a number of things that we do that uh, certainly you know speaking from a research intensive university that involve uh, engagement with 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 industry, small and large, and it's one of those organisations where the the opportunity to engage with 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 uh, not just one sector but across the whole gamut of, of of UK industry you know is very useful. So if the CBI does not survive which is you know it must be a possibility it's been accepted by 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 the organization itself then I, I think we need to look at what replaces that um that you know there aren't that many fora where you know we, of course we lobby directly we have uh, into government we have universities uk we have mission groups but i think there is a real uh, space for higher education to have to have a dialogue with with, with business and there's you know, of course, we have chambers of commerce, we have sector-specific bodies, but there isn't a single place where you can have that that same engagement. Now, you know, I, I suspect if the CBI doesn't survive, I, I'd like to think that something will take its place. And again, you know, wearing my economics hat for for one second. Uh, it's actually very healthy for countries to have both on the trade union side on the employer side, you know, large organisations that can have a dialogue with each other and with government, particularly at difficult economic times. And in fact, I've seen quite a lot of academics, not only economists, but also work and employment specialists saying, you know, if the CBI does go under, we need to think about what replaces that in the same way as you wouldn't want, you know, not to have a trade union congress that brings together different trade unions. You know, it, it's a really important space for dialogue. Yeah, I'd agree. I think not not the the CBI and 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 I don't know uh, whether it can uh, sort itself out because that's actually what it needs to do uh, uh, to to survive. It's not to me. It's it's got to get its house in order. It's 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 in a terrible place and. Um, you know this this whole thing around the culture is 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 simply appalling um, and it's quite shocking in this day and age actually um, but engagement between industry and universities is is a vital thing and has been something that has has been growing over uh, well um, since since we added the third uh, third bit to the stool back in in 19 the 1990s where you know there was a recognition that we had to take employability we had to also look at our research and make sure that it had uh, real world uh, applicability and that uh, near near market research became much more important as well in that context and if you're going to do those things if you're going to make sure your curriculum's relevant if you're going to make sure that your research um, is is having an impact on on our economy and our society um, actually engagement with 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 businesses is is, is essential um, not necessarily the CBI but but something um, that speaks for business in an, an, an ethical and, and appropriate way. Um, that's, that's, I think, what we should be looking for. Yeah, and it's interesting that Michael, in his uh, in his uh, blog for uh, on 1K blog, I mean, it does does talk about this. Talks about the fact that there needs to be probably something which will move into this space if the CBI doesn't survive. And, and as Mary says, I mean, the the, the, the they've. Uh, Admitted that it's been a toxic culture, but it's you know some of the some of the uh, the stories that have come out are just absolutely appalling. And 
And, uh, you know, I think this is this is the difficulty. You know, it's not, you know, when you haven't acted for a number of years, to be able to then turn that around is really quite difficult. I've, I wonder, you know, re- reading the stories, because, you know, you're all sort of looking kind of like, what's the, what's, what's the learning to extract? You know, what, how, might, how might this apply um, over, over in the university sector? And I think what's, you know, certainly... Um, you know, for you know, so nearly ten years now, universities have been working in a really kind of in a really meaningful way on this question of of um, of sexual misconduct and violence and, and violence against women and girls. And uh, you know, it, it sort of it sort of interests me, I suppose, that the sector never had a moment like this. And and and, and I really hope that you know, I, I really I don't I don't necessarily expect that you know that, that something like this will happen in our sector. And I suppose the question is why. And I suppose it's partly because, um, you know, the, the, the sheer kind of, uh, the sheer happenstance of, of the, of a secretary of state at the time in sort of 2016 or something saying, actually, you know, let's, let's do some work on this and, and, and UK picking up that baton. But I do think it's also a little bit about the way that student voice works in our sector. Um, and I think it's such a kind of a thing to celebrate, um, because, what what I see, and you know, and I, I've, I've certainly not dived into the absolute detail of this, but what I see in an organisation like the CBI is people who are, are you know, early career, you know, dis- disempowered in some way, sometimes because of gender or because of the role that they hold, or you know, the combination of that, not feeling like they've got anywhere to turn, not having a voice. Um, and I know that universities aren't perfect in this way, and that you know, and and, and, and certainly I, I suspect that, that you know, junior staff in universities can sometimes feel this way, and that's you know, this, it, you know, and certainly you know, welcomes done all that really interesting stuff about research culture and, and, and about but you know I think as a, as a sector we're actually pretty good at trying to kind of get to the bottom of these things and, and thinking about those power imbalances in ways that um, other you know other sectors could really learn from. I I think one can never be complacent about these things Debbie and and mm. you know I'm I'm old enough to know the old culture so I'm afraid you know it's yeah there are there are past behaviours shall we say which um, in in a number of cases, you kind of look at now and you think, my God, that was terrible. Um, and uh, I, I agree with you, though, about student voice. I mean, this is the thing. This is why higher education is so, so absolutely fantastic, because it is our students who can lead us to better practice, I think, an awful lot of the time. Now, that's not to say that there isn't student-on-student sexual violence. There really, really is um, an issue there. And, 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 you know, one one works closely with student unions in order to to challenge that and to to, 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 um, all the work that's currently being done about uh, consent and, and those sorts of things is so terrific. But we can't be complacent. It's it's something we have to continuously work on um, because the society's at the end of the day not right, and and we we don't treat human beings all sorts of human beings correctly. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree, I agree with Mary there, and I think universities can be no better than society. I mean, a lot of the interactions that take place in universities reflects society and i but i do think exactly that i think the student voice and the employee voice i think again to give credit to trade unions in this space what they've done is they you know this wouldn't happen probably in universities 
in the same systematic way because of the fact that cases simply would be you know taken up by employee representatives uh, and and i think again we'll, we'll need to learn the lessons of this particular instance with this organization but it sounds as if it was an incredibly hierarchical organization in a way, in a way that no university is to that extent um but as mary says look i mean i i, I came into the sector as a as a lecturer in the 1980s and it's a, it was a very different sector then like many other parts of uh, and 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 it's you know, I, I think we, I, what I wouldn't exclude is that you, you know, increasingly you always find historic cases coming up from, from higher education because, you know, we were no different than society in the 1980s uh, or 70s and beyond before that. And I think, I mean, it, and, and, you know, and it's right that universities should work to, ex, you know, to, to re- reduce um, and, and, you know, ideally eradicate instances of sexual misconduct and violence. But I mean, it, it, is, it, it is to me very much more about the culture of 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 how those instances you know whether people feel safe to raise those you know the instance of how the things are handled and yeah and and like and, and you know we we know from all the work that has gone on that there, that there is still masses of work to do on that but i think just just the very fact that that work is happening is uh you know is 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 is, is, is a pretty good thing because it it signals that this is a sector that takes this stuff seriously burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com ACAST. That's burrow.com ACAST. burrow.com ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, there's a new commitment for disabled students uh, from the Disabled Students Commission. Anton, walk us through that, please. Yes, it's uh, Mark, it's fascinating. We finally have the report, uh, uh, the Disabled Student Commitment, which uh, was launched by the Disabled Student Commission uh, this week and was really uh, had been launched. Uh, the, the commission had been established by the university's minister back in, 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 20, in 2019 before the pandemic actually struck. Uh, and it's been funded with support from the OFS and, and the DFE. And uh, what it's come up with is, is, is a number of recommendations. And I think one of the interesting things for me is that, you know, this is not replicating what the com- what the uh, commitment is doing in terms of its recommendations. It's not trying to replace the uh, legal duties that we have towards disabled students as universities. It doesn't try to replicate that, but it's really asking organizations to do more by focusing on how they can improve the whole student experience for disabled students in, in a space that's moving very rapidly. And again, the other really interesting thing here is the fact that there's been some recognition that actually the pandemic has actually led to a lot of innovation uh, on the recording a lecture, access to extenuating circumstances, how we 
assess much more flexibly within universities. I mean, you know, there's been some interesting uh, examples from one or two providers, higher education providers saying, actually, it's helped to close the disabled attainment gap. So I think there's a, I think the recommendations, and there's there's a lot of them in the, in, in the commitment, uh, I, I think it's overall, there's about 43 recommendations, is really asking us to work in partnership much more with, uh, as a sector, with uh, different parts of government, but particularly within our institutions, with with disabled students, with staff, to try and really address some of the remaining gaps in the student experience and improve the student journey for disabled students. And then, even more importantly, transitioning out of higher education into work, because that's where often there are huge barriers still. So, a really interesting, a really interesting document, and I think a lot to, to ponder on for, for higher education institutions uh, on the back of it. Debbie, this, this is quite a good example, isn't it, of of the sector doing proper policy making by itself? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's very much in that vein, in that it's done a really good job of pinpointing some of those really kind of difficult things that just need to be fixed. So, for example, the idea that a, a student with a disability or a disabled student should only ever have to say tell their institution once that they are disabled. Um, and, you know, following which there should be a kind of meaningful series of adjustments and responses that cut across all the different bits of the institution. Um, so, you know, so each bit of the institution and or each year or each kind of new learning environment, there, there shouldn't need to be a kind of a, a rehearsal of that um you know, of sort of saying, oh, yes, I am disabled, that yeah, that these, this, this is all my documentation and all the rest of it. I mean, and that, that seems to me to be such a kind of a sort of an enormous no-brainer, although I appreciate there's probably quite a lot of kind of work behind the scenes. And I really do commend, you know, Jeff Lair as, as the, chair, the chair of the commission, who, you know, he's been such a kind of powerhouse in, in, in moving all of this forward. And, you know, and, and every institution sort of sitting down and going through line by line will, will, will find kind of examples of, of where they can kind of pull their socks up. And that, that, is, that is exactly right. Um, I suppose one of the kind of... You know, you hope that the sector can get together and and do this work. I think, but one of the consequences of that is is that it you know some parts of the sector will do some parts of this very well, um, other parts of the sector will do other other parts you know reasonably well, and some parts of the sector will, um, you know, will will, will not pick it up. Um, and there's no kind of there's not really any a sort of mechanism to, to force it other than I guess a sort of um. You know, a sort of, a sort, of, a sort, of a sort of sense of moral duty, um, and this is in the context, of course, when, when people are extremely kind of hard pressed. Anyway, um, the other the other kind of dimension to this commitment, which I think is really interesting, but 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 I think raises the same challenges, is 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 that that kind of broader group of stakeholders, so professional statutory and regulatory bodies, employers, um, you know, subject communities. I think it's really right that the kind of thinking and the theory of change here is is that those organisations need to really get 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 into a conversation about these issues and not just think this is something that universities need to worry about as kind of corporate organisations. But it is quite hard to see where the levers are to cause those conversations to happen. I, I think that's right. Um, and um, But, you know, you can't, you can't fix everything by, by having, you know, um, heavy-handed levers. You, you, you do need to get people to work together. I mean, one of the things I think is really useful in this is it talks about curriculum change and it talks about professional bodies. And um, one of the barriers to curriculum change and to assessment change has been professional bodies, not always. And sometimes they are used as a kind of a, 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 a you know, people go, oh, 
the professional body won't like that. Um, and you know that they're, you know, it's smoke and mirrors. Um, but but I, I do think coming together around that in the way that people kind of had to around the pandemic and actually saying, no, we are, we are going to make reasonable adjustments here and we are going to do that together and we are going to be able to make that happen. This just gives a little bit more um, oomph to, to that. And, and I agree with you, Debbie, when one has to really um, uh, congratulate uh, Jeff and, and the whole commission for the work they've done. And he had kind of, he, has, he just hasn't given up. You know what I mean? He's kind of pushed and pushed um, in terms of, of, of getting this, this, this moving forward. And, and, and I agree, we should have had a system whereby students could tell the institution once and that's it years ago, years ago. But it, it, it is astonishing, but, you know, it's actually harder because I kind of marched and said years ago, <laughs> marched and said, right, we're going to do this. And, you know, it took ages and it still wasn't 100%. Um, so, so it's not it's some of these things are not easy, but this just adds further oomph to 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 all of that. Um, and and to be to be fair to institutions, I think the experience of, of um, many disabled people is is that it's not just universities that that don't don't do some of these things. Uh, I think you know the kind of sigh when they have to repeat their situation. It's not just in universities; it's everywhere, including things like the NHS. Actually, um, so so, but we have to find solutions, and it's really good to see that um, the recommendations are there. And and I do think an awful lot of institutions will take it seriously. And and I can I can attest to that. I mean, having had sort of issues in my own family with students who've uh, had to deal with this at institutions, I think institutions are getting better. I mean, if I give you an example of my own university, I mean, in the last year or so, we've in the light of the pandemic, we've been looking at our accessible and inclusive learning policy, and. As Mary says, a lot of this is about culture. It's about trying to empower our own colleagues, teaching colleagues, to give them, to help them with guidance on how you really do embed inclusive practice in curriculum design and delivery. Because often a lot of these things around professional bodies and professional requirements are smoke and mirrors. They're, they're simply traditions and cultures that have existed. But when you do challenge them from, I mean, our, our institutions are in a position to challenge professional bodies and say, no, think about this you know this is about trying to deal with with a large number of students i mean we we've, we now have a record number applying through ucas uh with some declared disability and 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 it's it's a, it's a huge resource for the nation as well as of course you know so important for each of them individually that they have a that they have a good student experience but then make a huge contribution to society so uh, you know uh, there are still huge barriers here like uh, you know w one of the things the survey that that was done as part of the commission shows that only 17% of students have access to inclusive extracurricular facilities now that's you know that's not at school or, or, or in higher education that's not good enough and, and again so I think we can improve hugely the biggest barrier is going to be resource it's going to be back to the first topic we were discussing which is as some institutions come under real resource pressures 
what goes first, it tends to be these things that go first. It's support for, for, for students, whether it's around mental health or it's, whether it's around disabilities. This is the danger that if, if you don't have a well-funded sector, these are the things that will come under strain. And, and it would be a pity because I think we're here on the cusp. We're on the cusp of being able to really make a difference for disabled students with, with, with this commission's recommendations. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Anton, Mary and Debbie and our news editor Michael Salmon who makes the show happen behind the scenes. We're off next week and back after the coronation, Jim will be here. In the meantime, stay wonky. Stay wonky.